Hello everybody, thanks for tuning back in for the second instalment of our March for Science special. In part two of this podcast, you'll hear from our guest Andrew Steele, who is an astrobiologist at the Carnegie Institution for Science. This episode we feel is aptly titled, The Scientist. We hope you enjoy. is Dr. Andrew Steele, who's an astrobiologist. Um, he's known to his friends as Steely. Um, and he's going to talk a little bit about his work and what he thinks about the march and so on. So I'd invite Steely up here. I didn't fall over, so I do appreciate that. <laughs> so I guess we, we should start by talking um, about why you took part in the march and what it means to you. I think um, from a purely scientific standpoint, I, I took place because I think the public needs to understand that scientists themselves have a dialogue amongst themselves during the scientific process. That I think some is, there is currently a disconnect of understanding between uh, what the public think of how science is done and, and presented and how scientists want them to think about how science is done and presented. And so I was uh, out there with my family, my daughter and, and my wife, uh, to kind of try and push that agenda that we need a, a more constructive dialogue with, uh, with the public. How did you enjoy the march yesterday? Um, I, I really enjoyed it. My phone didn't. It got very wet. Oh dear. And we got very wet. Um, but I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I, one thing that struck me was the just the positive energy and, and good feeling from everyone concerned, whether they were part of the march or uh, members of the public who had just bumped into walking to and from the march. They were very, uh, we all wore lab coats, we're all smiling and mm -hmm. saying, oh, you're a scientist. He said, yeah, I'm a scientist. Um, and I had a great dialogue with my daughter when I got home. Now, my daughter has hung around the Carnegie most of her life. Um, and has met many postdocs and many scientists from all over the world. And I, I, so I asked her when I got home, I said, um, did the march change your understanding or, or, or perception of scientists today? And she said, yeah, definitely. I said, well, why? And she said, well, they were so cool. Everyone's so cool. And they were so nice and so friendly and they're funny. And I, I said, well, it, how did that you know, um, kind of go against what you already thought. She said, well, I thought scientists can be cool, but they're a little intense most of the time. <laughs> I think that's probably still true. And I think it is still true, but that she definitely, even though she's hung around scientists all her life, the march yesterday really brought something different to her. And, I, and that made me smile a lot. I was really happy with that uh, last night. And I think if we achieve that through the march yesterday, then we've, we, we're taking giant strides in the right direction. Mm -hmm. uh, speaking of cool, we'd actually like you to talk a little bit about your work as well. So Tara and I are huge fangirls ah. of this. 
Uh, yeah, I, um, I, I tried to find life on other planets. Um, a bit esoteric, I suppose, in a way. Um, but I, I'm part of Mars missions and look at Mars meteorites to try and define a robust protocol to de detect life within our solar system. Actually, I have a bet with the astronomers that they're going to find it first. Uh -huh. But um, we still have to, uh, you know, explore our own solar system. So I'm, I'm very much in, involved with um, Mars research at the moment and trying to set a background of organic chemistry where if we find uh, evidence of life, that we can kind of deconvolve it from non-life processes. And that way you don't have to assume the nature of life that you're looking at. Mm -hmm. So how on earth does one go about studying life on other planets? Um, I <laughs> don't exactly know. I sort of fell into it, I suppose. Um, we're very lucky to have a lot of meteorites from Mars that we can study uh, in Earth laboratories because whilst we have these absolutely unbelievable space missions to uh, to Mars and uh, elsewhere, um, Cassini, around Saturn at the moment, um, you can basically do a lot more fine work and uh, a lot more um, robust work on samples in the lab. Mm -hmm. The spaceships are incredibly, um, incredibly developed. Their instrumentation is unbelievable, but it's still not a human in the loop is much better at uh, looking at samples. Um, so you get on a mission and you start to make measurements with the instruments on a particular mission. If you wanted to get involved in space missions and you have a good idea of an instrument to use, contact your local uh, NASA person who's making a, a mission and suggest your instrument for that. And that's basically how I got involved. Um, I got involved in 1996 with a um, gentleman at NASA who thought he'd find life in a, in a Martian meteorite. And I was the microbiologist that went along to try and help out. That's so cool. Yeah. Um, so what indication is that there's life on other planets? Um, it's intriguing but we don't have any firm evidence at the moment within our solar system. Um, but there are, I think there's, there was a revolution in our understanding when uh, deep sea hydrothermal smoke is these birthplaces of life that we think are very similar to what uh, life, uh, the conditions of life formed up 3.6 billion years ago. Uh, the same year that those were discovered, Viking landed on Mars in about 1978. And that revolutionized our understanding of environments in which life on Earth could exist. And when you look at Mars and Enceladus and Europa, those conditions exist or existed on those planets and moons uh, way back. So if life is an imperative, then is there life there? And if not, why isn't there life there? And uh, how does that relate to the origin of life on our planet? I would say on the basis of that, that you're pretty good at relaying your research to a lay audience, somebody who has no background in the subject. What do you think that other scientists should be doing in order to facilitate this? I think public engagement is, is really important. I've been um, very fortunate over the years at the Carnegie to engage in quite a few public outreach um, programs, uh, including a current one at the moment where we hope to bring scientists into an active dialogue with the public. Uh, sometimes the public seems to think that science is um, either personality-led or policy-led or uh, industrial partner-led, 
towards a conclusion that they may not necessarily agree with. But the scientific process is one of making measurements to define a hypothesis and then testing that hypothesis. And you may not be able to verify that hypothesis, but that doesn't mean that you're doing something wrong. It's actually part of the entire process. So understanding that science is a series of sometimes very complicated mistakes uh, that lead to an understanding um, of how to change the hypothesis to continue to test that. Um, and that process is a dialogue between you and the natural world that is constantly changing and evolving. And I think more scientists have to engage the public in that understanding so that the, when big press releases come out that the public get excited about, that they're able to go, yes, but is this, you know, when will this be verified? Because it's not the first discovery that actually um, makes a Nobel Prize or uh, uh, a new discovery uh, viable. It's actually the research that comes after that, that cements that in the literature, that rigorously tests it. And so when we come to an issue like climate change, that people understand that this isn't just one or two scientists saying something the, to get themselves funded, or it's an idea they have. It's many thousands of scientists over a long period of time who are testing hypotheses. And yes, mistakes are made, but that is part of the scientific process. So this is probably a good point to introduce Taste of Science. And uh, our coordinators here, Tara, Holly, and Katrina, have worked really hard to set up a series of events trying to do exactly this. So bringing the public out to spaces where hopefully they enjoy um, speaking to a scientist. So we go to bars, we go to cafes, we come to beautiful institutions like this, which we're lucky to have um, been able to work with. And the idea then is for people to have this integral conversation with scientists and be able to say, oh, okay, so I never understood that. Please tell me more about how this mm -hmm. works. Um, for anybody who's interested in our events, we actually take place in um, simultaneously in 13 cities across the US. Um, the festival covers absolutely every kind of facet of science. We cover physics, biology, we include the social sciences. And you can go to tasteofscience.org in order to find tickets and, yes, go and speak to the scientists yourself because this is not... Uh, first of all, there are lots of events for kids. This is geared towards adults, so they have a forum that they can go and speak to people. And also, it's, yeah, it's an opportunity that most people don't have because you don't have direct access to the scientists on a regular basis. Do we have time for questions? Uh, my question, as far as science is concerned, is how do we bring moderate Republicans... I mean, I don't think we can do anything as far as like the crazies on either side. But if anything, as far as the march is concerned, I feel like it was somewhat partisan. And what I really came here for is science. And what I would like to do, if, if I can find any Republican that's for science, just your ideas on that and whatever. Uh, I think for, for myself, um, I like to think of science. Science has a political aspect to it, which is based around policy and funding. But science in itself, um, as the way that you undertake science is open to any anyone of, of any creed, culture, religion, or thought process. And it's getting that basic message across to everyone, it, I think, is the most important part of this. So, well, if you disagree with me, come up with an experiment to prove me wrong, right? And that 
use your mind to engage in a scientific dialogue with the natural world and bring me that data and let's discuss it. And that the scientific process is one based on discussion and consensus. And so bringing whoever they are of whatever political spectrum together to, to understand that point gives you a basis for opening a constructive dialogue. And so I think we have to address the basics first and foremost and then engage as many people as we can in an active dialogue. And I think every scientist has to do this. And it has to be done from a point of view of not being partisan about that conversation. It's the only way, I think. Because to be perfectly honest, there are plenty of Democrats out there as well who also deny certain aspects of science and research. So it, it has to be a complete conversation. You can't just isolate a particular group and say, we need to target these people. Um, next question. Hi, I would like to know what you think is water really essential for the existence of life? Because what we read on the papers is that the scientists are always looking for signs of water. And if you find signs of water, oh, there must be life on that planet or that asteroid or whatever. What do you think? Oh, from a scientific standpoint, I think that, um, yeah, act active water, yeah. Um, people can think and speculate on other solvents that would help life develop, but water is still uh, the best from that point of view. Um, <laughs> basically, um, well, life hates water in a way, doesn't it? Because it kind of tries to keep water out of the cell membrane. It doesn't like water in those. It kind of uh, messes with all the proteins, etc. But you need to carry solute and solvent. You need to have that gradient, concentration gradient across a membrane to be able to generate energy. But the, the biggest thing is the energy gradient itself, I think. I, uh, my personal opinion is life started on this planet because of tectonics because of Humphrey Davies' infernal engine, this core that is driving these superficial processes and this cycling of water and volatiles, this food coming up from the deep and that is transformed and then goes back down through these cycling. I think that that is intimately linked to life. Um, Mars, I'm not sure, has that. It's kind of gone a bit dead. The core is a bit sleepy, well, very sleepy. Um, but places like Enceladus, where you still see this active energy transfer water spewing out into space, which is a free sample, by the way. Um, you don't have to land and drill through ice anymore. You can go through and catch it and bring it home. Uh, if anyone's listening, you would like to do that, please do. <laughs> Give me a call. Um, and so the active energy barriers, you've got to keep that Bunsen burner going. If life started, if there's 10,000 test tubes from the, the simplest molecules to the most complex life, you've Almost every one of them needs a Bunsen burner, and if that Bunsen burner isn't there, then it, I don't think it's happening. I have another question from Tara. Yeah. Hi, Pompeo's not kidding. I'm a big fan of your work. Um, so as a researcher, I'm assuming you're in favor of funding for basic research. <laughs> um, yes. So you touched on the idea of scientific consensus and people understanding <laughs> that science is an evolving process that builds on itself. But how would you convince them that basic research is important in the first place? Why do we do things like, for example, try to find life on other planets, as opposed to just the immediate practical work, if that makes sense? Right. I, I think all throughout our history, these blue sky problems, like 
for me, using this specific example is, are we alone? Where did we come from? Where did we go? Where are we going? Those, those questions are really quite fundamental to us as a species and to understand those. But these, the, the journey that's taking us down that path has found all sorts of wonderful um, things. Like, for instance, Mars has a CO2 atmosphere, but there are very little liquid water at the surface. But there's a lot of evidence of liquid water at the surface. Was there a runaway greenhouse effect? If there was, how does that relate to our planet? If there is no life on Mars, why isn't there life on Mars? How does that relate to Earth? So these fundamental questions have led to a lot of increase in, in say, instrumentation and the way that we look at, at samples and the way that we look at the world that are then transported off. I take advantage of a lot of uh, tools that were manufactured in the biology and the astronomy world to look at rocks. And um, the medical field, as far as genetics go, are now absolutely... Um, blowing our minds as far as the understanding of microbial ecology on our own planet. And there's a bacteria with a nucleus that has just been found. I mean, go figure that out. Um, uh, viruses wrapped in membranes that have their own metabolic machinery. Um, the, the more that we push these boundaries, the more that we find out about our own world, and the more spin-offs into our daily lives that means, right? You can point at the computer revolution as something that was done for Apollo in some cases, or the internet revolution as something that was done for the, um, the large colliders in, in Europe, right? Uh, this, it, those fundamental questions drive um, technology and understanding, which then makes its way into our daily life. And that doesn't mean that uh, applied funding isn't very useful. I mean, it, we need to be able to apply the basic funding, what we find out through the basic funding, uh, to our life in, in a more uh, applicable way to enrich our lives and to enrich our ability to be able to continue this journey of, of knowledge. Okay, on that note, oh, we have one more. Um, this is a question uh, that uh, somebody from the audience um, asked outside. They left it on a piece of paper. Um, it's, I, I guess it's just directed generally to scientists. What is your day-to-day -day job like as a scientist? Oh, <laughs> um, well, uh, usually I, I take a couple of coffees to get going in the morning. Um, um, I spend an awful lot of time in the lab. One of the greatest things about working in the Carnegie Institution, as you saw in the video earlier on, is that they give us the time to do our work. So I'm very much a, p a person who's hands-on with the microscopes. I do a lot of um, what's called confocal Raman imaging spectroscopy. So I usually go in, start a sample going, I can put a map on, it'll last a couple of hours. I can go in, crunch my data from the night before, and then start the next scan. Um, so I do an awful lot of data reduction and data crunching. That's what I love. I'm uh, actually not, uh, I don't do kind of public speaking very often um, because I just want to be in the lab. I love working on samples. I have 30 odd pieces of Mars that I'm looking at for signs of organic matter uh, to set a background at which then when we go and bring samples back, I can say that there's a life signal again. And if that is not the coolest thing in the world, I really don't know. I'm so privileged to be here doing that. And every day brings a new surprise, brings a new measurement, brings my next set of measurements. And then I go and I 
Like this morning, I have to get a load of samples ready because I'm going to Germany in two weeks to do a transmission electron microscopy where I'm going to be looking at these samples at the atomic level. And uh, so I, I thought I was going to be late, actually. <laughs> so I've got, I just got those samples ready. And that's my day job. And then I, I supervise uh, postdocs with their work. I end up working for my postdocs. They don't work for me. So <laughs> they say, oh, Steely, I need to do this. Oh, yeah, OK. Well, well, we'll, we'll do that. And I'm very much an active scientist who loves to make measurements, and I don't want that to change. And this is exactly the kind of person we need coming out. This is exactly the kind of person who wants to say, you know, I want to stay in my lab because I love my work this much. And if you're the kind of person who's now coming out to the, the public, I think you're setting a good example. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you so much for speaking to us, Andrew. It's yeah, been you're very welcome. Thank pleasure. you for listening. just been listening to a two scientists podcast now if you'd like to keep up with our new releases you can follow us on twitter at two scis facebook or google plus using the handle two scientists or for the more old school among you you can check out our website at two scientists.org thanks for tuning in Don't forget to come back for our third and final part tomorrow.